We're gonna be in Genesis chapter 31. If you've got a Bible, Genesis 31. If you don't have a Bible, you need to find one because we're gonna be going through the word. By the way, if you are joining us either for the first time on a Wednesday night or for the first time, period, if, if this is new to you, I just wanna let you know we started in Genesis several months ago and tonight we land in Genesis chapter 31. So we have just been uh, making our way through the Bible. I didn't pick this section to teach tonight. This is where we are. And yet, as he so often does, the Lord has such a specific word to us and to, I think, our country, our world, where we are right now. So Genesis chapter 31, I'm gonna pick up right where we left off on Sunday, and that is in verse 13. At this point, God is speaking to Jacob. We are dropped right now into almost the middle of Jacob's life. He's 97 years old, but he's got a while yet to live. And we're at a point in Jacob's life where he's moving through what we would call sanctification. He's being purified. He's being changed. And the Lord is working on him. And so he speaks to him. It says the angel of God spoke to him back in verse 11. And in verse 13, he says, I am the God of Bethel. Bethel, that is house of God. I'm the God of the house of God where you, Jacob, anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. That is, go back to Bethel. Now the recounting here by Jacob, what's going on is Jacob is talking to his wife Rachel and his other wife Leah, if you wanna know more about that story, you gotta go back in chapters 28, 29, and 30 and read that. But he's talking to his two wives and he's recounting to them how God spoke to him in a dream and now is calling him to go back to Bethel, back to the place where he first heard from God, the very first time he heard from God in a dream in chapter 28. And the Lord spoke to him there in Bethel and he left Bethel and went to a place called Padam Aran, which is outside of the promised land, 450 miles away. He's been there for 20 years, and now it's time to go home. And now God is calling him back to Bethel. And so verses 11, 12, and 13 of chapter 31 are most likely the broader retelling of what Jacob says or what we're told in verse three of chapter 31. If you look back there, it says, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So now he's sharing this with his wives. Jacob, it's time to go back to Bethel, back to the place where faith was ignited. We've been talking about this here at the bridge for a while now. We would say back to our first love, back to the place where we first met Jesus, where we first knew of him. And God here has not forsaken, nor has he forgotten Jacob in this 20-year-long sojourn outside of the land. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 14, tells us that Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Maybe you feel like that right now. Maybe you've wondered if the Lord has forsaken or forgotten us in this season of time. The Bible says Zion, God's people, Jerusalem, actually said that, and the Lord responded, Isaiah 49, 15, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. The Lord does not forget his people. He always remembers us. And the Lord does not forget his promises. So get this, because he doesn't forget his promises, 
he doesn't forget ours either. Because the Lord keeps his vows, he doesn't forget about our vows, like the vow that Jacob made back in chapter 28. Let me just read this to you. Genesis 28, verse 20, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, and really this probably isn't an if-then statement, it's probably since God's gonna do all this, as Jacob is realizing it, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, Bethel, house of God. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So Jacob makes a vow at this place in the promised land, Bethel, and now God is calling him on it. He is calling Jacob to fulfill his vow. Now there's an old Danish proverb that says eggs and oaths are easily broken. I wanna update that a little bit. I think promises are like iPhones without screen protectors. Okay, easily broken. <laughs> Matthew chapter five. If you have a Bible in your lap, hang, hang on to Genesis 31 and turn all the way over to Matthew chapter five. I wanna share with you and want you to think about what Jesus had to say about vows. Jacob makes a vow. God's calling him on the vow. Listen to Jesus' words about the very thing that we're dealing with here. Matthew five, verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, Anything beyond these is of evil. See, Jesus tags us. He knows we have trouble keeping our word. He knows we make promises all the time, and it's not even that we mean to not keep them. It's just we forget. How many of us have made promises in our lives, and if we looked back over and, and recounted them, recalled them, if we could, I think we would be shocked to see how many times we've said, oh, I'm gonna do this. Lord, I, I promise you do this for me. I'll do this for you. And we, we get in and we say, yes, Lord, we're gonna keep this vow. And I think if God gave us a list of all the vows we said we'd keep, we'd probably be a little embarrassed. So Jesus, by grace, says, just, just don't even make vows. Just say yes, Lord. Just say no to the world. Just say yes, just say no, but don't get into making vows because you're gonna have trouble keeping them. And in fact, Jesus went further. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, he said, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. And that makes me shudder because I've spoken a lot of careless words in my life. He says, for by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned which is why it's so important that my word be, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. By that confession, I am justified by grace. Anything else can get me into trouble. So why, going back to Genesis 31, going back to Jacob, why does the Lord take our vows and promises so seriously, even calling Jacob on his vow 20 years later, and it's because that's who he is. God never breaks a vow he makes. And he never forgets a promise. 
And I'm so thankful for that. Every promise we read in scripture that God made, he has not forgotten, he will follow through, he must. Because it's his very nature for him not to follow through would be for him to deny himself and he can't do that. He keeps every promise. It's in his nature then to keep his vows and he wants it to be in ours. You know, there's power in the words that we speak, in the things that we say to each other. Words can rip someone apart and words can build somebody up. And so back in chapter 31, God calls Jacob back to Bethel and back to his vow because he knows Jacob's vow is what Jacob needs. Jacob needs to return to his promises. And so now Jacob, at the age of 97, is about to take it on the run again. But at least this time he's running in the right direction. He's going back to Bethel. And as Jacob speaks in verse 13 of Genesis 31, he's talking to his wives again, telling Rachel and Leah about this second divine vision in a dream. And the wives chime in in verse 14. Rachel and Leah said to him, do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Now, now let me explain. He's recounting this dream because he's telling his wives, I wanna get out of here. I wanna move back to the land I came from. I wanna take you back to the land of my father, Isaac, the promised land, Canaan's land, Bethel. I need to go back there. God appeared to me in a dream. He said, return to Bethel. What do you think, ladies? And so Rachel and Leah respond, do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and also has entirely consumed our purchase price, that is their dowry. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said for you to do. We'll go. We're with you, Jacob. This family's a little messed up. There is no love lost between these girls and their father, and they are ready to leave Laban and follow Jacob wherever he goes. Verse 17, and then Jacob arose, and he put his children and his wives upon camels, if you've ever ridden a camel, and I have, I cannot imagine this journey, riding camels. But the other thing that's interesting here is that for him to put all his wives and his children on camels means he's got a lot of camels, and to have a lot of camels means that Jacob has come into some great wealth. He is a very wealthy man in terms of flocks and herds and male servants and female servants and camels and donkeys, he's, he's got it all. God has blessed him richly outside of the land, and now that he's ready to go back, he puts his family on these camels. Verse 18, he drove away all his livestock and all his property which he had gathered, his acquired livestock which he had gathered in Padam Aran to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Verse 19, when Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were, in her, that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing. So as they sneak away, Rachel steals or lifts Laban's idols. What's going on with that? I'll tell you in just a minute. But I want you to note this word in verse 20. It says, and Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing. And we need to clear something up because Jacob has been called the conniver, he's been called the deceiver, and a lot of that is our our colloquial understanding of who Jacob is. We assume that he's a conniver, a deceiver, 
But the word isn't even deceiver here. In fact, what it probably better translates as is that Jacob had stolen away from Laban. In other words, he snuck away. He's sneaking out in the dead of night. It's not that he deceived him. I guess you could say he did, but the idea is that Jacob took all of his stuff, his flocks, his herds, his family, his children, his wives, and he got out before Laban knew what was going on. And I think justifiably so because Laban was somewhat of a holder on. He was hard to get loose from. Laban found every way possible to keep Jacob in the land and keep Jacob working for him. Laban was a trickster himself. And so now Jacob sneaks out. The word deceived there that's translated deceived is yignob, and it means stole away unawares. It means to sneak off or we might say slip out the back, Jack. It's not an act of deception. It is an act of breaking free. But what Jacob doesn't know is that Rachel stole the household idols of her father Laban. She's toting some troubling totems. And the word here for household idols, it's one to get used to because you're gonna hear this in the scriptures, especially if you continue through studying the Hebrew scriptures. It's teraphim. Household idols is teraphim. And what teraphim were were little statues of domestic gods. These little idolatrous statues of, of false gods, of pagan gods, and they would have them in the households of the day. And Rachel stole them from Laban. What's she doing? Hold that thought. Verse 21. So he, that is Jacob, fled with all that he had. And he arose and he crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead, and that would be Jordan today, the region of Jordan. Verse 22 continues on. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days journey and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. That would be a 300 mile journey. Jacob's driving flocks and herds. He's got his children, his wives, and he's moving at probably a pretty slow pace across this 300 miles. Laban, however, has just taken some of his guys, his crack squad, and he's heading out at a full pace. So though he's three days behind, seven days later, he catches up with Joseph. And Laban's in a rage. This guy's not happy. And what we're gonna see here is God shows up and cools his fury. Verse 24, God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. Cool it, Laban. You better slow down your thinking. You better be neutral here, bro. This is the second time now God has intervened with a pagan by dream. Back in Genesis chapter 20, he did it with Abimelech where he kept Abimelech from lying with Abraham's wife, Sarah. He appeared to him in a dream and said, don't do this. And now he's done it again. He's intervening and he's telling Laban, hold your tongue. Don't you speak evil or good to Jacob. You just cool off. That's always good advice. <laughs> when you're upset with someone, watch your mouth. Don't send the text. Just wait a minute. You know, since the advent of texting, there have been more fights because people don't understand each other. Same thing with email. Before you hit send, wait a minute. Think about what you're doing, especially if you're angry, if you're upset. Slow down. 
And remember what Jesus said, Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Now you may stand before God and say, well, I didn't speak any careless words and he'll grab your cell phone and go, well, let's just take a look. Let's check your texting. Every careless word, slow down, think. God is giving Laban a chance to cool his jets. Verse 25, Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. So they're all there in the mountains of Jordan. They've all made this trek. And we're told in verse 26 that Laban said to Jacob, what have you done by deceiving me? Or again, by stealing away from me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword. Well, they're not captives of the sword, Laban. They went willingly. They wanted to get away from you. Why did you flee secretly and steal away from me? And did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs and with timbrel and with lyre. Yeah, lyre. If you've followed the story of Laban and Jacob, we're already at a point now where Laban is not happy with Jacob. He's frustrated because Jacob has been amassing wealth and flocks and herds. He has been incredibly blessed and Laban has been losing right and left. And Laban is not friendly toward Jacob. We're told back in the first couple of verses of this chapter and so for him to turn around and say, oh yeah, we would have had a big celebration, not likely, not likely. He says, why did you not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you have done foolishly. Verse 29, he says, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. So clearly the dream had its effect. And Laban's slowing up. Now that you have indeed gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? And that's it. Well, there's Laban's intentions. That's the real problem. Laban is not upset because Jacob left. He's not upset because his children, his daughters left or his grandchildren left. He is upset because his gods have been stolen. This man on a mission of murder until God intervened but the daughters and the grandsons were the least of his concern. What really put Laban on this 300-mile warpath, he says at the end of verse 30, why did you steal my gods? And it's the first instance in the Bible of God napping. And it cracks me up because can you imagine having a God that can be stolen? Why would you want a God someone could take and stick in their pocket? or pop in their backpack and, and head out the door of your house. Isaiah 46, verse seven, speaking of such gods, says, they lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. False gods, idols, amulets, household gods, teraphim, it's really pretty ridiculous when you think about it that your God could be stolen. If you, again, have your Bible open, turn over to Psalm 115. The Psalms are in the middle of your Bible, pretty easy to find. Psalm 115, and listen to this word. I think it's appropriate here. Speaking of the teraphim and these household gods, and Rachel's now stolen them. By the way, Jacob doesn't know. 
He's not aware the gods have been taken. He, he didn't authorize this. Rachel did this on her own secretly, but Laban knows, and Laban is incredibly upset because his idols are missing. Listen to what the Bible has to say about this. Psalm 115, verse one. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, that is your grace, and because of your truth, why should the nations say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them will become like them. That is, hard as stone. Everyone who trusts in them. Oh, Israel, the psalmist says, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Verse 12, the Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. He's your help and your shield if you fear the Lord. He will bless you. He responds to you. It's such an, a remarkable drawing here that the psalmist makes about mouths that cannot speak and eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear, kind of like the Jesus statue in Rio. By the way, because of coronavirus, the statue, the visiting site in Rio de Janeiro of the, the huge Jesus on the mountain, you can't go see him right now. It's been closed down. But if you get close to that statue, what you'll see is stone eyes and a stone mouth and a stony nose, and even carved on the chest of the statue, if you look up close, is a little stone heart. Unfeeling, unseeing, unhearing, unable to speak, can't even move off the mountain unless we were to move him with cranes. That's not Jesus. That is not Jesus. Our God is not stuck on a hill. And our God is not pocket-sized to be placed in a house. No, our God is very present. Our God is our help. Our God is our shield. But, but any person, any security, anything that we put our faith in other than God himself can be stolen. I mean, think about that. Even people can be taken from you. Income can be taken from you. Material possessions can be taken from you. God alone cannot be taken, cannot be stolen away. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where neither thieves break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And at the end of Matthew chapter six, we were just talking about this earlier today in our staff meeting, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Listen, side note, I wanna to say to you all, if you're in a place where you're losing employment because of coronavirus, 
or things are shutting down and you're not sure where income is gonna come from, where provision will come from, I would stake my very life on this truth that you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. I absolutely believe that. All these things doesn't mean I'm gonna be a wealthy man. It's not prosperity gospel. It doesn't mean I'm gonna be rich. It means he will provide for me. It means tonight there's gonna be a pillow for my head and a roof over my head. That income is going to come as needed. God will provide if we would trust in him, if we would cry out to him. Now, back in the story, Jacob has trusted the Lord. It's why Jacob has been so blessed. It's why he has flocks and herds and why he has so much by way of provision. God has done that. If you don't know that, we talked about it on Sunday. Go back and listen to it. He is a shrewd and good shepherd who knows how to take care of his own. So Jacob has been provided for, but the one thing, the one issue we still gotta deal with here is that Jacob doesn't know about these little idols. He doesn't know that Rachel's got them in her backpack. Completely unaware And so the first thing he does is answer Laban's accusation of sneaking away in verse 31, Genesis 31, 31. Then Jacob replied to Laban, because I was afraid for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. And that's key, Jacob was afraid. Part of the reason Jacob got stuck serving Laban for 20 years of his life was Jacob was afraid. Jacob feared Laban. He snuck away at night with all that he had in his wives and children because he was afraid if he actually went to Laban and said, hey, I need to go now, Laban would say, fine, but your wives stay here. And so he confesses, I was afraid of you. I was afraid that you'd take your daughters, my wives, by force. And then Jacob addresses these missing household gods, these teraphim, verse 32. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. He declares the death penalty for the the perpetrator. Whoever it was who stole these teraphim, he didn't know it was Rachel, but he's saying this person will not live. Verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maids, that'd be Zilpah and Bilhah, but he did not find them. And then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent, verse 34. Now, Rachel had taken the household idols, the teraphim, and had put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them, and Laban felt through all the tent, but did not find them. Verse 35, she said to her father, "Um, let not my Lord be angry, for I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. And so he searched, but did not find the household idols. Sneaky girl. (laughs) Rachel sits on them and then says that she's having, well, it's that time of the month. So I'm sorry I can't get up and, and move so that you can search under the seat on which I am sitting. Wow, Rachel, what are you doing? Listen, Rachel is sneaky. She's shrewd, you might say, but she's probably not pagan. Going back to, why would she take these household idols in the first place? Why does she do that? And some say, well, clearly she she wanted to take her gods with her. I don't think so. 
I think in the 20 years that she's now been with Jacob, it's pretty clear that Rachel and Leah and the household are believers in the one true God and that she is not a pagan. Jewish tradition even teaches that Rachel took the idols to put a stop to her father's idolatry. She didn't want Laban to have anyone to pray to. She wanted to leave him without any idols so that he would have to ultimately cry out to the one true God. Other people say she's just getting back at him, you know, for selling her off and for the way he had treated her and her children and and her sister. Getting back at dad for consuming what should have been her dowry. Remember what she and Leah had said to Jacob before? Back in verse 15 of chapter 31, are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? He has sold us and he has entirely consumed our purchase price. So that's possible. She may have just taken the teraphim to get at her dad as a swipe on the way out the door. But I think it's something else. Why did she take the teraphim? The most intriguing reason to me is that she was procuring property for protection. That is to say, she was investing in hers and Jacob's family security. This is unique. There were three purposes for the teraphim in the Middle East of the day. Three reasons we know historically why people had these little household idols in their homes. And one was pagan worship. They literally worshiped them. Another reason was public custom or norms. We see that in American households today. People will have idols all over the place and they don't even know they're idols, but it's just kind of what you do or what you have. And so in Padan Aram, people in their tents and among their peoples would have household gods. It's what you did. But there's a third reason that they had household idols, these teraphim. They were property rights. The teraphim represented property rights. Let me explain further. The Code of Hammurabi states clearly that whoever has the household gods owns the property. What I think Rachel's doing is a little security work. She's taking the teraphim with them and thus it's like stealing the the deed of trust for Laban's land, taking it with them so that they can come back and produce the household idols and take over the land and I think that's Laban's greatest fear. You took my teraphim. You took my deed of trust. You now took my right to my land. What if you come back? And so Laban's afraid. Rachel's pulling a fast one. The possession of the teraphim meant property rights. And she meant off with the rights of Laban's land. Again, verse 35, though, she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry, for I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household idols. And that just cracks me up. Clever girl, clever girl. The manner of women. If the manner of women was really upon her, And even if Laban suspected her of hiding his little gods, by sitting on them, Rachel made them unclean. Even if the manner of women was not upon her, if Laban thought so, he may have assumed. I mean, he may have been looking at her going, there's nothing I can do. He's not about to try and get a hold of those gods now. They've just been made unclean. Jacob is still unaware of all this. He didn't know this was going on, and so picking up in verse 36, he begins to vent his anger. Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. Literally, he became blazing hot, and he began to grapple with Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, what is my transgression? 
What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? He's saying, man, I have been unreasonably chased. Verse 37, though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? See here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide, decide between us two. And so he's saying, I have been unjustifiably charged. And so he thought. <laughs> but in verse 38, these 20 years, he said, I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks, which as a shepherd, he had the right to do. That which was torn of beasts, I did not bring to you. Which again, as a shepherd, if you were shepherding someone else's flock and a, a wolf came in and tore a sheep, you could produce the torn carcass of the sheep and you would not be liable for that sheep. And yet, Jacob says, I bore the loss of it myself. I paid for it. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. So it's worse, Laban forced him to pay for any loss of the flocks. Thus I was, verse 40, by day the heat consumed me and the frost by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. This has not been a good 20 years. And these 20 years, verse 41, I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock and you changed my wages 10 times. I am unreasonably chased I am unjustifiably charged and I am unscrupulously cheated. This is not right, what you've done to me, Jacob says to Laban. And then watch this, note this, it's a hinge verse. Verse 42, he says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. Why is the fear of Jacob going away? Because faith is coming into his heart. And as faith arrives, fear departs. He's now talking to Laban like he never has. He clearly is no longer fearing Laban because faith is there. And his faith isn't in nothing and his faith isn't in teraphim or household gods. No, his faith is in the God of his father, the God of Abraham, and note this, the fear of Isaac. The pachad ishtak. This is the first time and only one of two times that this is a name given to God. And it's given as an actual name, the fear of Isaac. God is the fear of Isaac. It appears only here and down in verse 53, as we'll see in just a few minutes, the fear of Isaac. Isaac, Jacob's father. Let me say something just to dads specifically. Our children need to know of the fear of the Lord in us. Our children need to be able to say, I know the fear of my dad. Not, not the fear of me, not my kids being afraid of me, but that they know that I fear the Lord. When, when Jacob refers to God as the fear of Isaac, he's talking about the fear of his father. He knew that Isaac feared the Lord. Isaac is the first one of the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob trio. He's the first to only believe in God. Abraham was a pagan before God called him into monotheism, before God called him to follow him as the one true God. Isaac was raised knowing Yahweh, knowing El Shaddai. 
And now Jacob comes along and refers to God as the fear of Isaac, my dad's God, the God my dad feared. And our children need to see that, fellow fathers. Ephesians chapter six, verse four says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I'll tell you what, the absolute best way for us to teach our children is for us to fear the Lord ourselves. It is not the father who drops the kids off at Sunday school and goes to coffee. It's the father who's worshiping. It's the dad whose Bible is open. It's the, it's the papa whose children sees him praying in the house. The fear of Isaac? Do your children see the fear of God in you, brothers? It is interesting to me that Jacob recalls this now. This is the first time Jacob has made this statement, called God the fear of Isaac, but now he's on the verge of the promised land, of Canaan's land. He still hasn't crossed over the Jordan, but he's close to it. He's close to home. He's thinking about Isaac, and all of a sudden, this name for God comes up, the Pachad Yahweh, or the Pachad Yishtak, the fear of Isaac. And Jacob, in this moment, finally overcomes his fear of Laban. Verse 43. Then Laban replied to Jacob, and I'm gonna try and do this like I think, Jacob, like I think Laban did. Well, the daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine, but what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have born? He lost, and he knows he's lost, but he's still making a final pitch. This is all mine, you just took it. Whiner, verse 44. So come now. Let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. And then Jacob took a stone and he set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and they made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Now Laban called it Yeger Sahaduta, which is Aramaic. Jacob called it Galid, which is Hebrew for the same thing. These two words, get this, it's a, it's a great word, heap of witness. <laughs> it's just a heap of witness. They piled up stones and they said, these stones are now our heap of witness, our Galid, our Yeger Sahaduta. But it was also named, verse 49, Mitzpah. And that name would stick, Mitzpah. For he said, may the Lord Watch between you and me when we are absent one from the other. Listen to that again. Does that sound familiar? May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one from the other. It's called the covenant of Mizpah. And Laban, again, has his name in the Aramaic. Jacob calls it Galid in the Hebrew. But Mizpah means watchtower. This is the covenant at the watchtower. And verse 49 has been used by friends and sweethearts, boyfriends and girlfriends, as a little romantic benediction. I don't know if you still can, but you used to be able to find this on little plaques and little necklaces and pendants in Christian bookstores. And it would be written up, the Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent from one another. If you happen to have one of those, there's nothing romantic about it. This is not a romantic covenant at all. In fact, it's a covenant of contention. 
It's more like the Lord keep an eye on you, jerk, when we're apart and I'm not able to be guarded against you. This watchtower, this is, this is between us. You don't cross this and I won't cross it. We're gonna stay apart. Verse 50, if you mistreat my daughters, Laban says, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. I'd have to ask Laban at this point, which God? One of your little teraphim that you can't find right now? Laban's a pagan. And the only reason why he says God is witness between you and me is he's calling on the God of Jacob, the fear of Isaac, to be a witness. Because as far as Laban's concerned, one God is as good as another. And then, where are we here? Between you and me. Verse 52, he said, this heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm, and you will not pass by this heap and pillar and this pillar to me for harm. In other words, don't come back bringing my gods and claim my property. Don't come back and rip me off. And then verse 53, he says, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, by the way, the God of Nahor is not Yahweh, it's not El Shaddai. The God of Nahor, Abraham's father, was a pagan god. And he says, the God of their father, judge between us. And so Jacob swore, and here it is again, by the fear of his father, Isaac. The covenant of Mizpah, it's like when my brother and I were kids, we took masking tape. We shared a bedroom for a time, for kind of a long season. We had the same bedroom before we ended up getting two separate rooms. And while we had the same bedroom, maybe you did this, my brother Ron and I would take masking tape and we would draw a line up the middle of the room. That side's yours, this side's mine. And that's what's going on right here. Of course, in my case, we drew the line up the middle of the room and the door was on my side, so Ron was stuck. I like playing that one on him. But that's what these two men are doing. This is the watchtower. This is the masking tape along Gilead and these mountains. And you don't come across this way and I don't come across that way. You stay on your side, I'll stay on my side but I love Jacob's response to this. As Laban lays out this contentious covenant, Jacob is so cool. He again swears by the fear of his father Isaac, the fear of Isaac. He's referring to Isaac's faith in the one true God. Isaiah chapter eight, verse 13 says, it is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. And so the fear of Laban has now been replaced fully with the fear of God. Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and after a night in jail for preaching Jesus in the temple courts, they now are hauled in before the big wigs and the stuffed shirts. And I love this scene, Acts chapter four, verse 18. When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And I know right now the devil would love for us to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Churches can't meet. You can't be in groups of over 50 or, or over 10 or whatever the numbers are gonna be. And you know, I know, the government's not doing this purposefully, but I'll tell you what the enemy is. To try to use this to shut down the gospel if he can. I love what Paul says in 2 Timothy. The gospel is not imprisoned. The word of God is not imprisoned. And Peter and John, standing before the Sanhedrin, they answer these Jewish rulers and they say, 
whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. You know why? Because when the fear of the Lord comes, you truly fear nothing else. Jacob no longer fears Laban. Peter and John, they didn't fear the ruling council that had called for the execution of Jesus just weeks before. Because when the fear of the Lord comes, all other fear ceases. Verse 54 Then Jacob, he offered a sacrifice on the mountain and he called his kinsmen to the meal and they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them and then Laban departed and returned to his place. Note that, Laban kissed and blessed his grandsons and his daughters and he practiced social distance from Jacob. At this point of sanctification, realize that even family struggles, even family dysfunction can sanctify us. That God can use these things in our lives, in our families, when things are going all sideways, God can still use this to sanctify us, to teach us to fear him, to trust him, to follow him. And Jacob here is still under this divine work of sanctification. On the run, under family distress, he knows the one to whom He's running. He is running now to the fear of Isaac. Now there's one more fear that he must now face. Chapter 32, verse one. As Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him and Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. And so he named that place Mahanaim. This is so cool. Two little verses inserted into the story. As Jacob has now left his fear of Laban for the fear of Isaac, for God, his his Lord, and, and he's moving in this direction. Now he comes to a place and suddenly what happens? God's keeping his word. Jacob comes upon a company of angels. A company of angels. And we know this, I'll explain why in just a second. But God is keeping his word. Back in Genesis 28, 15, behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. And what is God doing? He is setting up angels stationed along the way home. What a great encouragement for Jacob to see angels of God directing him back to Bethel, back to the house of God. Angels, Hebrews chapter one, verse 14 says, are they, that is angels, not all ministering spirits, note this, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. See, angels are a bonus to getting saved. You give your life to Jesus and God says, I'm gonna make sure you get home and he will even dispatch angels to to meet you along the way, though you may or may not know it. Jacob knew it. Something about these angels, it was clear to him that this was a company of angels and so he names the place Mahanaim. Mahanaim is the double form, it literally means, it's a plural form, meaning double camp. Jacob named this double camp. I like what Derek Kidner had to say about this. He said, the force of the name Mahanaim, double camp, is that Jacob's own company, think about how large Jacob's company is, as he now could see, is matched by another. It was a heartening beginning to his own ordeal. Mahanaim. 
Later, Mahanaim would become the border town between Manasseh and Gad, Joshua chapter 13 tells us. It's also the city to which King David would, would flee when he is usurped, when his throne is usurped by his own son Absalom. He'll run to Mahanaim, 2 Samuel 17. But it's called Mahanaim because there is a meeting of two companies, Jacob's and now this company of angels. We don't know how many, but we know it was a double camp, Jacob's camp and the camp of the angels. Jacob's on his way now. He needs a little encouragement because it's probably starting to hit him to get back to Bethel. He has to go through Edom. He's gonna have to pass through Esau country. Proverbs 18 verse 19 tells us a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Watch this, verse three. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Side note, this verse kind of cracks me up because if we're reading it literally, it would say that Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Harry in the land of Shaggy, the country of Red. He also commanded them saying, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Jacob is sending some guys ahead to meet Esau and say, hey, I'm coming back this way and I hope things are okay. I hope things are okay. He's taking a position of humility, calling Esau his Lord, even though by birthright and blessing, Jacob is the Lord in this relationship. But he's, he's trying to take the downside. The messengers he sends out, in verse six, they return to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Laban behind him, and Esau before him, out of the frying pan and into the fire. One fear ameliorated, a new fear is now gonna rise up in Jacob. In fact, you could say his fear of the Lord is getting body slammed by the fear of Esau. Verse seven, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Pause there for a moment. Right now, a lot of people are greatly afraid and distressed. That verse, man, you could plop that down on the world and people are afraid and people are distressed. This word distressed is yetzer. And yetzer literally means to be narrowed. It means to be closed in on, as in dire straits, as in social distancing, <laughs> as in you need to hole up in your homes and we feel like the world is closing in as this virus is all around and no one knows what's happening with it and people are distressed, they're pressed, they're squeezed, they're fearful and worried I confess to waking up in the morning. I shared this today with a few people. Waking up in the morning, and you know you wake up and you kind of forget for a minute, but then it all comes back and you go, oh yeah, coronavirus. Oh yeah, quarantine. Oh yeah, we can't go about business as usual. Everything's disrupted, and people are feeling this. As we talk about this whole fear that Jacob had to deal with tonight, I wanna ask you, are you feeling that way? Are you feeling distressed? like things are just getting tighter and tighter and we're getting shuffled into small places and squeezed between, between fear and the unknown. 
And so many people are feeling this right now, feeling squeezed as our world faces this startling pandemic. Listen, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, but you know who else was? Jesus. You need to understand that Jesus empathizes with distress. He gets it because he felt it. When God put on flesh and dwelt among us, when God went into the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, verse 36, says Jesus there said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be grieved and distressed. That word distressed in the Greek is like a horse shuddering. And so he's, he's feeling the squeeze. He's feeling being pressed and narrowed and closed in on in dire straits in Gethsemane. The Bible says in Matthew 26, 38, he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here. Keep watch with me. Of course, if you know the story, you know Peter, James, and John promptly fell asleep. While Jesus is over there trembling and praying, and, and, he, and he's so emotionally, so overwrought, the Bible even says in Luke that his sweat became like droplets of blood. Hematidrosis is what we call it, where the capillaries near the surface of the skin literally burst and blood comes out of the sweat glands. Jesus was distressed, and the one thing, the, one, the only thing that could grieve and distress Jesus like that above all other things is the grief and the distress of our sin that was before him. What he faced in the garden, you think you're distressed? You think you're in dire straits? I'm telling you, Jesus felt it, and he felt it beyond anything that we can imagine. That is comforting to me, to know that I have a God not a little household God that can be stuck in a pocket or a backpack or lost along the way. I have a God who literally walked into distress, who felt fear like we feel fear, who was completely grieved in his soul. He gets it. If you're worried, he gets it. If you're frightened, he gets it. He completely relates. He knows how you feel. The question is, what did he do with that? And the immediate answer is he dropped to his knees. When Jesus was in his time of greatest distress, he prayed. He's in the garden and he drops to his knees and he begins to pray. He'll do this three times. He'll come back to Peter, James, and John. They're asleep. He'll wake them up. Pray with me, guys. He'll go pray some more. Finally, he comes back and he gets arrested in the garden and as he's being hauled off, in his walk to the cross, Jesus is completely calm. There is no fear. There is no distress. There is no worry. He is in control of his person, of his emotions, of his answers that he would give to Pilate and others. He was completely calm. Why? Because when Jesus faced his worst distress, he prayed, he prayed. And it was that prayer in the garden, I believe we see that for that reason, to understand through prayer comes total peace. He's under arrest, arrest, but he's also under peace. What is the first thing that Jacob does in his distress back in verse seven? He didn't pray, he planned. 
And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. He's distressed, he's worried, and he's making a plan. Don't you do that? Don't you? Hey, three words. Buy toilet paper. What are people doing right now? They're, they're distressed, and so they're acting. They're jumping, they're rushing, they're panicking. They're, they're making plans. Okay, well, we gotta make sure we have, we have to have enough supplies for this to ride this thing out. Hold on. See, that's what the world does, and that's human nature. When hit by distress and fear, we plan. Okay, we go into that mode. We gotta figure this out. Jesus prayed. Let me just tell you that planning in panic is never the best first move. We look at Jesus' example, stop, pray, and then make your plans. It's not that planning or, or thinking out what we need to do and how we need to move through this season is a bad idea, but pray first. Spend some time before the Lord. Seek him, and then peace comes. You can ask for wisdom from above. James tells us if you lack wisdom, ask. You seek his direction, or as Proverbs 3, verse five says, you trust in the Lord with all your heart. You do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Jacob immediately goes into planning mode. Hey, don't blame him, it's human, it's what we do. But Jesus, in his human state, God made man, stopped and prayed, and that's the ideal. And if you're feeling distressed right now or fearful at all, if fearful thoughts come into your mind, stop, pray, and then plan. Now, I think Jacob begins to realize this. And in an obvious sign of a man being sanctified, he does begin to pray, verse nine. Then Jacob said, oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, oh Lord, that is Yahweh, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. <laughs> Remember when you said that, Lord? He says, verse 10, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. He says, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as great as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. This is a beautiful prayer in distress. I love that we see this in Jacob, that he is drawing now near to God. He is praying, he's crying out for deliverance in his distress, calling on the God of his fathers, naming him Yahweh. And he does so in humility. In humility, he recognizes the loving kindness. Note that verse 10. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness. That's that Hebrew word chesed. It means grace. I am unworthy of the grace. I'm unworthy, he says, of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. He comes to God in humility, listen, when you're in distress, this prayer is a great pattern for us. Come to God in humility. 
first. Oh God, I am not worthy even to be talking to you, but thank you that I can. Come to him in humility. Recount his goodness and his faithfulness to you. Listen, when things are going wrong in your life, anytime things are going wrong, stop and as you pray, remember what he's done right, what he's done good. Remember how he has blessed you, how he's been there for you, how he has shown you grace. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Well, Peter, when is the proper time? I'll tell you when, when you're humble. When you are at that place of being humble before the Lord. God's answer often will not come until we have come to the place of humility before him. Until we recognize our humble position because only then are we really able to hear him And know that it is God who is answering. Start with humility. There was a time in Jacob's life where he felt like the birthright and the blessing were rightfully his. He should have that. Sell me the birthright, he says to Esau. And then he he goes about stealing the blessing, lying literally to his father to take hold of of the blessing because Jacob thinks it's for him. He's right. It was for him. It was supposed to be for him. God proclaimed that. But there was a time when he thought so. Now he knows he's completely unworthy. All he had when he left the land before was a stick. And now he's coming back with two full companies. And so he recognizes God in humility. Second thing to do when you're in distress, pray in honesty. I was talking to a dear sister about this this afternoon. What do you do when you're praying and you don't feel like God's answering and and you're calling upon him and you don't see his answer? Just be honest. God is not afraid of our honesty. Verse 11, we note that Jacob says, I fear him. I am afraid of Esau. He's right up front with God. I'm scared to death, Lord. Sometimes we think of prayer as being like a rabbit's foot, like you rub it to get your answer. When in reality, what what prayer is more than anything else is relationship. And we talk to God to know he's here, to sense his presence, to, to bow before him. And you don't have to ask for something or plead for something. Sometimes prayer is just saying, God, I'm scared. Father, I'm distressed right now. Lord, I'm worried. I don't know what to do. And God hears you. So pray in humility, pray in all honesty. Are you afraid right now? Are you distressed? Are you overwhelmed? Tell him. Yeah, he already knows, but he responds to the honest and humble heart. Isaiah 57, verse 15, thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. And a lot of people see him that way, but they miss the second part. And with the contrite, and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Pray with humility, pray with honesty, and then when you're in distress, finally, hold God to his word. Hold him to his word. Verse 12, Jacob says, for you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. You said this, you promised me, you made a vow to me, Lord. 
that you would bring me back to the land, that you would prosper me and take care of me and be with me until you had accomplished everything. You said this, hold God to his word. Now, that might sound a little bold. When you pray, hold God to his word, who am I to hold God to his word? Well, first of all, you're humble and you're being honest. But you hold him to his word because these are his promises. Because this is his word and our gracious heavenly father invites us to hold him to his word. There's a word for that, by the way. It's called faith. We trust him because of what he said he would do. Come to him in humility. Come honestly and hold him to his word when you are in distress. So in Jacob's case, the promise that he's holding God to now is to bring him back to Bethel because the Lord said, Genesis 28, 15, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Hold him to his word. Verse 13, quickly, just a couple more verses here. Okay, more than a couple, but I'll move quickly. Verse 13, so he spent the night there and he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking cows and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. That's quite a gift. I'll tell you what, my brother never gave me something like that. He delivered them into the hand of his servants even or every drove by itself and he said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between droves. So he's sending groupings here, one at a time, one gift after another after another. He's trying to cool off Esau. He's hoping to appease his brother. A little space in between them, verse 17, he commanded the one in the front saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong, then you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. That is, Jacob's coming, but first, a gift. Verse 19, he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed in the droves, saying, after this manner, you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And then afterward, I will see his face and perhaps he will accept me. So the fear of Esau is driving now, drove by drove. Jacob is very afraid. The present, verse 21, passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp. Now, verse 22, he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children, that is his sons, and he crossed the ford of the Yabok, and he took them and he sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. Some have said that he was trying to send his wives and children first. So if anyone gets in trouble, they do before he shows up. And that's not what he's doing. Uh, and you can find that over in verse three of the next chapter that he will pass ahead of them and bow down before Esau. So he's actually gonna precede his wives and children. But on this night, dial into this. On this night, he sends them out ahead. Why? So he can be alone. Jacob is now utterly alone with his fears. And that is when he comes face to face with the fear, the fear of Isaac that is now becoming the fear of Jacob 
Verse 24, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. We will find on Sunday morning that that man is none other than the Lord. Hosea chapter 12, verse three says, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. But the angel, the malak, the messenger, we will find out is none other than God himself. And then it says, he wept, he sought his favor, he found him at Bethel, and there he, that is God, spoke with us, even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Now, I'm gonna save the story of Jacob's wrestling match until Sunday morning for our live stream, which, by the way, will be at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. But I wanna leave you with this tonight. Final thought. Jacob is still being sanctified. His whole life is a, is a pattern of sanctification, just like yours, just like mine. That's what God's doing here. If you're in hard times, if you're in dire straits, if you're distressed, God is sanctifying. He is purifying his people. He knows just how much you can take. He's not gonna give you more than you can handle, but he is going to purify you for himself so that we, so that you and I can be a people holy and set apart to God. Because we have more to do way beyond this life. I'm not gonna get all into that, but this is Jacob. He's being sanctified in this ongoing process and it's working. It's working. We are about to see that Jacob, who the very first time he heard from God was at Bethel in a dream, now is going to be skin to skin, face to face, wrestling with God at a place called Peniel. It's amazing. To what end? Why does this happen? Jacob is coming now to the point where God is no longer the fear of Isaac, but fully the God of Jacob. Psalm 46, verse 10 says, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Let's pray. Oh God of Jacob, how remarkable that this is now what we can call you. As Jesus said, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, 20 times, Lord, in the Hebrew scriptures now, the God of Jacob will be your name. How marvelous that you finally became that, that Jacob finally came to the point of fully embracing you as God. No longer the fear of Isaac, his father, but now the God of Jacob. Father, my prayer tonight is that you would be the God of Rick the God of Les, the God of Jake, the God of Eva, God of Cheryl, the God of Mindy, the God of each of us personally that we would know you as our God, follow you as our God, trust you as our God personally, that we would draw near to you. Father, increase our faith in the fear of the Lord so that all other fear, all other, other distress would melt away. I pray in Jesus' name.